All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, looking at verses 8 through 13 uh, this morning, the objective of spiritual endurance. Recall last week in our time together, uh, the call was to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, recognizing that no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So we were called to resist those entanglements with the affairs of this life in order that we may please the Lord. And we've spoken about the nature of this battle into which we are engaged, the type of soldiers that we're called to be, that we are fighting a spiritual battle. We are not called to be soldiers in the physical sense. We are, we are not an army of Christians in the physical sense, as, as we might see, but that we are called to fight a spiritual battle, that the weapons of our warfare, as Paul would say, are not carnal, are not earthly, are not material and temporal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They are spiritual. The, the battle is over souls, over hearts, uh, and it is fought not, not against the, the earthly people and institutions around us, but it is fought against the spiritual forces that compel them. The devil, his demons, who have blinded the minds of them that believe not. Uh, the devil and his demons, who are liars from the beginning and who seek in every context to draw men into lies lest they live in the glorious freedom of the truths of the Word of God. And we as believers can be susceptible to those lies. The unbelieving world lives blinded entirely by those lies. But we as believers can live susceptible to those lies. We can live in that same context of deceit and so live in the shackles of sin and its consequences rather in the glorious freedom of the of the righteousness of God. And so we were called to endure hardness, to fight that spiritual warfare. And this week we're going to see the objective unto that end. The question why. We saw this in Philippians a little while ago in a slightly different, con a slightly different angle. But why suffer? Well, we suffer because the temporary sufferings of these borrowed bodies today gives way to unimaginable joy in the resurrection. Why yield? Why yield our rights? Why yield our intentions? Why yield ourselves to the Word of God? Because the temporary yieldedness of our borrowed rights today gives way to the permanent promises and rewards of the resurrection. And this is where we're going to orient ourselves as we continue in our context today. That as we saw from Romans chapter 8, verse 11, last time we were together, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And as we think through this, we need to recognize that the foundation of the battle, we need to remember the foundation of the battle and that the foundation of the battle is, in fact, the gospel itself. The baseline for the claim to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ is rooted in the reality of the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. There are many gospels in the Bible in, in, in that sense, that there are many elements of good news. There are times where we see that word gospel used, and it's not necessarily speaking of the gospel of salvation. And yet primarily, when we talk about the gospel, when the Bible speaks of the gospel, it is speaking of a particular message, isn't it? 
the message of salvation of men from the penalty, from the power, and from the presence of sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 says, For I delivered unto you, the, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. The depth of this sacrifice is expounded throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and it begins with a full understanding of the condition into which man's sinful state places us. I'd like to begin our, our message today, and really much of it will be founded upon expounding the gospel. Many be confident in saying most of us in this room have accepted the gospel. You know the gospel, and yet there's still such a benefit to reminding ourselves what the gospel is. To, to, to bubbling back up that foundation, to remember what it is upon which we stand. And this is essential to the context where Paul is calling Timothy to endure hardness because as we are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is, the battle is over the gospel. When a soldier goes to, to war, he has in his mind what it is he's fighting for, right? He goes over there for his country. He goes over there for his family. He keeps a picture of his wife and kids, and he says, I'm over here. I'm bringing the battle to them over here so that they can't bring the battle to my wife and kids over there. I'm bringing the battle to them over here to preserve freedom for those who, who aren't fighting the battle back home. It's important that we remember what we're fighting for. It's important that we remember that the battle that, we're ra that, that is raging is, is a battle founded on the gospel and the desperate need for the gospel to pierce into this darkness of this world and to reach the hearts of those who reside in that darkness. And so 1 Corinthians tells us the gospel, that Christ died for our sins. It begins with a full understanding of the condition into which man's sinful state places him. The word sin means to miss the mark. As it relates to the unbelieving world and the believing world, we see a couple of different marks. The first being the mark of the righteousness of God. And then once a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are clothed in Christ's righteousness, and so they are no longer missing the mark of the righteousness of God because Jesus Christ has hit that mark for them. And then, as we would relate sin to the believer, the sin to the believer is, is to miss the mark of faith, right? Because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That without faith it is impossible to please him. And so as we who are in Christ live this life, we live it in faith because if it is not in faith, then it is sin. Then we are missing the mark that God has called for us to hit, which is faith. And yet in the unbelieving world, it is true that outside of belief, outside of faith, as the unbeliever resides outside of any faith, even that, that mustard seed of faith by which one enters into the kingdom of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, they are outside of Christ's righteousness, thus they are living in unrighteousness. So that Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory 
of God, establishing the proof of the claim that Paul made a few verses earlier, that there is none righteous, no, not one. You're not righteous, I'm not righteous, no one is righteous, and I cannot establish my own righteousness. And because I cannot establish my own righteousness, I recognize that I am a sinner. I have missed the mark. But why does this matter? Why is it a problem that we've fallen short of Christ's righteousness? Well, because going all the way back to the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, in the Garden of Eden, we've seen the natural consequence of falling short of Christ's righteousness, the natural consequence of missing the mark, the natural consequence of sin. Adam walked with God in the cool of the morning. They talked together in unencumbered fellowship, side by side, walking together, man and God, until something happened, right? Until Adam and Eve sinned. Until they chose to do that which God had commanded them not to do. So Genesis 3 verse 8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Imagine that. They hear the voice of God, and every other time they hear the voice of God, they come and they meet him to fellowship with him and to walk with him in the cool of the day. This time they hear the voice of God, having sinned, knowing good and evil, having clothed themselves or with, with, with fig leaves because they knew that they were naked. The, the first manifestation of man's guilt being to cover his shame, the shame of his nakedness. And they hear the voice of the Lord and they hide. What a terrible thing. They have been separated from God. They have lost that fellowship which they once enjoyed. There was a separation that took place and now they, they could still stand physically in God's presence, but the spiritual link between themselves and God was severed in the moment that they fell short of God's righteousness. And the Bible calls this concept death. So that when God told Adam and Eve, if, if you are to eat of this fruit, the day that you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. You say, well, they didn't keel over. Yes, but they did die. The word death simply means separation. Now, when we talk about death, we recognize death in the most um, natural context of human existence, which is the point that our body fails us and the spiritual part of us separates itself from the physical part of us, and that is death, right? Death is the separation of the spiritual from the physical. But in gospel terms, death is the eternal separation of the spirit of man from the life of God. So that when Paul wrote in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember, he was writing that to a group of believers, and yet the point holds true, believer, unbeliever alike, that when sin enters into our lives, it brings about a separation between us and the life of God. Thus, the wage of sin in anyone's life is 
death. For the unbeliever, it is eternal death, should they not be reconciled to the finished work of Jesus Christ. For the believer, it is a severing of that fellowship between us and God when Jesus commands us in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bring forth fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. And yet we can be severed from that abiding life through sin, separated from God, right? And so, for the unbeliever, if their physical temporal life ends before one finds a remedy for his spiritual condition, namely salvation by grace through faith, then the spirit enters into eternity separated from the life of God and is fitted thus only for a condition of eternal existence consistent with that separation, namely damnation, eternal death in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. Now, of course, none of that's good news, right? We, uh, we said we were starting with the foundation of the gospel. I haven't given you the gospel yet. I've given you the conditions that you need to understand to receive the gospel, right? And that is the bad news, which is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you have to know that in order to be able to receive the good news. If I am drowning and someone comes and says, here, I have a life preserver, and they throw it out, I have to know I'm drowning if I'm going to grab the life preserver, right? If I think that I'm doing just fine, no, thank you, I don't need that, I'm fine. It is only when I recognize my need that I am going to reach out for a solution. It is only that I recognize the depth of my problem that then I am going to be willing to uh, accept the, the dramatic solution that is, that is called for. So the bad news gives way to good news. And the good news is that God purchased our salvation. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, the Bible says this. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we speak about Jesus' death on the cross, and I'm speaking to a group of people that are familiar with this concept quite well. Again, most of you have received this unto yourself. We find that this God-ordained event served a much broader purpose than Jesus simply bearing shame and physical torture and death. Just as we have talked about fighting this battle, and it's significantly more than just dealing with the physical, we are, we are fighting on a spiritual plane. And yet it is going to affect us physically, and we'll talk about that as, as, as we get into 2 Timothy in a little bit. So too, Jesus bore the physical pain. Jesus bore the physical shame. But notice the emphasis here that the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That Jesus did not just bear a physical death and a physical suffering, but Jesus bore spiritual death on the cross. He was punished for our sin. He endured spiritual death, though Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that he had never once sinned himself in this life. And in paying the penalty for, a sin, for sins that he had never incurred, 
he was able thus to apply that payment to those who would receive it. And God can do that in absolute justice. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 tells us, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is the good news, right? This is the gospel. That the Father, God the Father, made his Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, to take upon himself for us that separation, to bear our burden so that we would not have to bear it ourselves because we cannot bear it ourselves except in the place of eternal conscious torment. So that Christ, in taking upon himself our sin, could then place upon us his righteousness. And whereas before, we thus lived in hopeless separation from God through the reality of our own sinfulness, we instead can live in that same fellowship complete fellowship with God through the righteousness of Christ. What was lost in Adam so that they were compelled to hide themselves from the Lord in shame over their sin is restored in Christ so that I may be brought back to the life and the fellowship of God by grace through faith. And that the payment is made, we know, not just through Jesus' events on the cross, but also through the events three days later. We see that the payment is made as Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. Three days later, however, the Bible tells us that he rose again. If Jesus had stayed dead, then the gospel is not good news. If Jesus has promised to mankind that he could give them eternal life by conquering sin, thus sin coming into the world by death, right? For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death came in by sin. If Jesus cannot conquer death, then he certainly can't conquer sin because sin is above death. Sin brought death into the world. If Jesus can't conquer death, he can't conquer sin. If I, if, if, if I can't conquer the disciple, how am I going to conquer the master? Right? So if Jesus didn't conquer death, he certainly didn't conquer sin, since sin brought death into the world. But in that Jesus did conquer death, through the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, he proved that he can do everything he said he can do, that he can pay for and conquer death, sin, the grave. And this resurrection completes the metaphor establishing Christ's authority and justifying Christ's victory. The metaphor of physical de death gives way to the metaphor of physical life. As sin brought death upon all men so that all are, uh, are, all are going to go to the grave. In the same way, Christ's resurrection can bring life to all who will receive it. Christ's resurrection shows that death had no power over him, and so death can have no power over those who would follow him. Now that's as far as we need to go to define the gospel in a way that gives us a good foundation. But let's just finish the message before moving on. We see that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We recognize that we're a sinner. We recognize we're separated from God. We recognize that Jesus Christ died to pay for those sins. 
and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We recognize that Jesus was buried proving that he did in fact die, but that three days later he rose again from the dead claiming victory over death, thus showing that he has victory over death and sin and the grave. And yet throughout the scriptures we find that not all will receive it, though Jesus has paid the price. So John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that's what we just discussed. That, that is the reality of the gospel. But then how does one receive it? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us that the payment is complete. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Skipping to verse 18, Therefore, as by one, as by the offense of one, excuse me, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So the separation between God and man has been reconciled in full, so that as 1 John 2, 2 tells us, Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. But the Bible also says that the whole world was not reconciled to God on that day. And that because most of mankind does not want to be reconciled unto God. Recall that it was not God who rejected Adam. It was Adam who rejected God, right? The cosmic problem is not that God is an angry God who has cast out his creation. The cosmic problem is that God's creation has cast out their creator. And so, though Jesus' death, the sacrificial death on the cross, to appease the wrath of God has indeed done so for the sin of mankind, past, present, and future, yet the Bible says that the condition by which man receives this pardon and enters into righteousness is, is singular and exclusive. We read verse John 3, 16. We continue that thought in verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The man who would seek unto this life, unto this reconciliation, can only obtain it by accepting what Jesus Christ has done for him, by humbling himself enough to admit that he cannot save himself, that he cannot be his own God, that he cannot reject his creator and find salvation still, but that he must humble himself before his creator, be reconciled unto his creator, and seek him exclusively, and to do so through the payment of Jesus Christ on his behalf to do for him what he cannot do for himself. And not only can he not do that for himself, but no other man, no other system, no other institution can do it for him. And the Bible says anyone who will commit himself to these truths, to this most blessed good news, will have Christ's righteousness placed upon him and will so enter into eternal life. And this gospel then becomes the foundation of the life of those who receive it. And this is where we begin to make this link. Your relationship to the gospel did not end the day you got saved. The day you accepted the gospel was not the end goal. That was the beginning. It was the beginning of a great journey. What I just presented to you, this gospel, the gospel that we would go out into this the unbelieving world and preach with boldness is a gospel which does not, 
does not stop at the door of salvation. It is the gospel that then to all who receive it goes from being the door to the, the floor. It goes to being the foundation upon which we build. It is the foundation for a life that is free from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. It is the foundation for a life that lives in the victory that Jesus has purchased on the cross. It is the foundation for a life that lives forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven me. It's a foundation for we who live in love because he first loved us. It's a foundation for the very essence of the manner in which we then live our lives. And, and, and believer, it's the foundation for the battle that we fight. When we think and we say, why is it that I'm fighting this battle? When you are enduring hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and you say, and, 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 and the darts of Satan are flying all around you and, and, and it pops into your mind, why am I doing this again? That picture that you pull out to remember why you do this again is the gospel. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the foundation. The gospel. We have been saved from the depths of our own hopelessness and been chosen as soldiers of Jesus Christ. And this is the context within which we're called to endure hardness, that we might live in the righteousness unto which we have been called, that we might follow Christ, that we might live out just a sliver of the sacrifice that Jesus embodied when he was bleeding and broken on the cross. So that we might be busy to work in telling others about this so great salvation. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, Paul speaks to this reality as he compels Timothy unto this type of endurance, a willingness to suffer in this life for the message that has given him eternal life. And for context, we go back to verse 7 as we walk through the passage this morning. Verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, Consider what I say. And the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. The first point that I'd like us to see this morning, uh, the first call is that we remember the power of the gospel. Remember the power of the gospel. As Paul exhorts Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and as Paul thus seeks to justify the call upon Timothy to yield the pleasures of this life and the comforts of this life in order to boldly share the gospel, he begins with the reminder that each of us needs constantly in this battle. Remember, soldier of Jesus Christ, that the gospel which you are called to share, which as you share, will ask of you any number of sacrifices. It might be just a sacrifice of time. Huh, do I really have to go there and spend all of that time investing in that person? Well, you probably will. To get to the point where, where they can receive the gospel with gladness, it may, be, it may take a lot more than just a 10-minute conversation at a door. It might take hours and hours, months, even years of investment into the lives of some to bring them to a point where they recognize their need. Sacrifice. Maybe a sacrifice of reputation as you would live this life consistent with the gospel, sharing the gospel. And it puts you on the outside. It puts you on the outside of certain groups. It puts you on the outside of certain fellowships. It puts you on the outside of certain associations. And for many in this world, 
just reading this week, um, I get an email from an e email service that, that shares accounts of the persecuted church. I was talking to Chuck about it just before the service. Um, this week's was a, a young lady, son of a Muslim sheik in Uganda, who throughout the process of time uh, and over the last couple weeks has accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Her father, finding out about it, commenced to douse her in gasoline and light her on fire, as often happens in the Muslim world when a person chooses to accept Christ. Rescued by her aunt and is in the hospital right now, not knowing what will come about once she's healed because of various laws and such. That's quite a sacrifice for the gospel, isn't it? When we are compelled to receive and to share the gospel, we talk about the sacrifice of time, we talk about the sacrifice of reputation, but for many in this world, it's a sacrifice of livelihood, it's a sacrifice of family, it's maybe even a sacrifice of their life. And as we do that, we remember that the gospel that we preach, the power that undergirds that gospel is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Remember the power of the gospel. Remember that according to this gospel, Jesus was raised from the dead. Remember that the power and the promise that undergirds the gospel we are called to tell, even to suffer for, is the promise of power of life from the dead. Remember what is at stake here. Remember that lives are entering into an eternity separated from God every day. Remember that there's no second chance for them as far as the Bible tells us on the other side of eternity. But that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Remember that we don't step into this battle unarmed. Remember that as you step into the, the world around you and you share the gospel, it is not just you with all of your charisma and all of your capabilities and whatever answers you might have on hand. It is not that that convinces men of the gospel. It is the power of God. Remember that you're not alone, that every time you share the gospel, the Holy Spirit has partnered with you in that endeavor. You are not unarmed. You are not even underarmed as you go to face Satan and his foes. As we see the darkness that is around us today, as we see the world in a state of true darkness and chaos, we say, what can compete with that? Well, how about the resurrection of the dead? Haven't seen the world do that. But that is the same power that undergirds our gospel. We step into the battle with the very power of the resurrection behind us and let us never forget as we weigh in the balance the call to endure hardness that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to this gospel. Now, before we move on to the next point, uh, there's a couple of things that I want to, to state in regard to verse 8. First, take note of the fact that Paul brings up the fact that Jesus is the seed of David here. Now, this would almost seem out of place considering that physical lineage plays no role in spiritual lineage, right? It doesn't matter as far as salvation is concerned. 
that Jesus was of the seed of David. It matters as far as prophecy was concerned that Jesus was of the seed of David. But there's no contention in Timothy's mind, uh, no doubt, that Jesus is the Messiah. So why, when Paul is writing to Timothy, why would he see fit to add this little snippet, Jesus, Jesus Christ of the seed of David, to this text. I don't have a definitive answer for you, but I have a speculation. We generally believe that the biggest battle that was raging in Ephesus would be a battle against paganism. It was the seat of the temple unto Artemis, Diana. Would have been a place of, and we mentioned that, uh, I believe last week, would have been a place of tremendous spiritual darkness because of that idolatry there one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And yet I I wonder if Paul, if there was another problem there, and we, we see this a little bit as we step into the book of Acts and we see the time there in Ephesus. I wonder if the reason why Paul emphasized Jesus Christ of the seed of David was that just as big as the paganism of the temple of Diana there in Ephesus was the resistance of the Jews who had been, as with so many other cities, standing against the church. And perhaps Paul wanted to remind Timothy and the readers there in the church of Ephesus that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, remember that Jesus was of the seed of David. Remember that as it relates to Old Testament prophecies, as it relates to uh, the, the legacy of the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Remember that he, not, not just as you're standing against those who have been taken uh, by the paganism of, of the, the Greek worship system and Roman worship system, but what about those who have committed themselves to legalization? You have power there. The power of the resurrection is, has power over that too. And the second point of note, perhaps, from this verse is notice that Paul does not say here according to the the gospel, but he says according to my gospel. This has been used by some to try to make a distinction between times and people groups as it relates to the gospel. I've heard it said before that that, that they've used this verse as a proof text that the gospel of salvation has changed from time to time throughout the course of the Bible. So that the gospel which Paul preached, which he calls here my gospel to the Gentiles, was only for the Gentiles. And that the gospel given to the Jews was different and even different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Typically, we would lot these people into a a system that we call hyper-dispensationalism. The idea that they saw the ages of the church as so, or the ages of of society and, and of time and of culture as so different that the way a Jew in the Old Testament got saved was different from the way a Jew in the New Testament would get saved, and the way a Jew in the New Testament would get saved is different from how a Gentile in the New Testament would be saved, and a Gentile in in the age of grace would be saved differently than a Jew or a Gentile in the time of the tribulation would be saved. And so the gospel changes with each iteration of history. That's called hyper-dispensationalism. And they use this verse because they say, see, Paul calls it his gospel, not Jesus' gospel. And they'll claim that the gospel that Paul preached was actually a different gospel than the one Jesus preached. And we know that this is untrue. In fact, in this very verse, we see Paul emphasize the Jewish roots of Jesus Christ, right? And see him connect the gospel to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So even this would undermine that argument. But more to this, 
we find in the teachings of Paul in Romans and Galatians that going all the way back even to Abraham within Paul's examples, justification has always been the same. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Paul tells us that Abraham was justified by faith without the works of the law. Naturally, Abraham was pre-law, right? He was before the law. So he says Abraham was justified by faith. And then in, in three verses later, in verse 6, he says David was justified by faith. So that we see before the law, a man who was justified before the Lord, Romans chapter 4, verse 3, and it was by faith. And then we see a man who was under the covenant of the law, Romans chapter 4, verse 6, David, and Paul says he was justified by faith. And then we see, of course, the preaching of the gospel. And in the preaching of the gospel, he was justified by faith. And so we see that within each of these, if we want to call them dispensations, as we would call them within our circle, we see that justification has always been by grace through faith. So Paul's saying, my gospel here, as he speaks to this, is not emphasizing that, his, that the gospel that he's preaching is different. He's not emphasizing the character of the gospel, a different kind of gospel, but only we find him emphasizing that the gospel that he's teaching speaking of the power of the gospel as he teaches it, and we're going to see him in verse 9 bridge the gap then to his suffering. In other words, he has personalized the fact that I am teaching the gospel and I am suffering for it. And so he's personalizing it in order to emphasize the personal nature of his own suffering for the gospel that he has preached. And so we see in verses 9 and 10, Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul says that the gospel he has preached has been the direct cause of the trouble which he suffered. That his preaching of the exclusive means of salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ has caused him thus to be reckoned as an evildoer and so to be bound, so to be imprisoned. And we know at this point, as he's writing 2 Timothy, that he's sitting in prison. And we recognize the, from the manner in which he writes, as well as from church history, that he will not get out of prison this time, that he will die in this place, that this is the final time that he finds himself in prison. And yet he took hope in this very thing, that though he may be bound, though he may be suffering for the gospel that he has preached, the gospel that, that is undergirded by the power of the resurrection that has been so effective that people have sought to silence him through imprisoning him, that he has suffered for this gospel, yet though he is bound, the word of God is not bound. And this brings us to our second point of remembrance. Number two. So first, remember the power of the gospel. Second, remember the liberty of the gospel. David wrote in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The sentiment was echoed by Paul in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. 
The world can bind the messenger. They can censor. They can ban. They can cancel. They can abuse. They can imprison. They can punish the truth teller in any number of ways. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, undergird by the power of Christ in the resurrection, cannot be bound. Truth resonates in the human heart in a way no man, no institution, or no government can oppose. The entrance of God's word shines light in the darkness of the human condition. In the days of Christ, the Jews sought to silence the message of the gospel by killing Christ. Just as they had sought to silence the message of God throughout the generations by killing his prophets. Just as they had sought to continue to kill the apostles in order to silence the message of Jesus Christ. But the word of God could not be bound, could it? It emanates from the very fibers of the created world. The heavens declare the glory of God, the scriptures tell us. Creation demands a creator. It testifies of a creator. The word of God cannot be bound. Man can silence the preacher, but they cannot silence the message because the message is built into every molecule of this world. Remember thus the liberty of the gospel and let it compel your courage to do and to say that which is right. Remember that we walk at liberty as we seek the precepts of the Lord. Remember that it is we who walk unbounded through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that it is we who are seeking to call others into freedom. Remember the liberty of the gospel. Let that remembrance of what Christ has done, of what he has freed us from, compel you as you seek to live and to tell. Timothy was called to endure hardness. And the direct context of this call in 2 Timothy 2 was a willingness to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pick up this mantle in our own study, knowing that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer some persecution. That though we would be tempted thus to despair at this reality, and though in times of suffering we would wonder if the unbelieving world will in fact be successful at snuffing out the message of truth contained in the gospel, we are then reminded that no matter, no matter how we might be bound, the gospel cannot be bound. That though they may silence the voices of truth, that though around the world Christians suffer imprisonment and indignity and great loss for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that for all of man's efforts at binding the messenger, there is no power on earth that can bind the message. So Paul says, for the elect's sake, for the sake of all those who might hear the gospel and receive it with gladness, Paul will gladly endure hardness. Why? Because since the message is not bound, every breath that I take where the gospel is leaving my lips, every day that I am able to live out the realities and shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is another day where the unbelieving soul can see that light, can hear that light, and can come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I'll endure suffering if it might mean more come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned many times and in many passages 
the concept of election. Let me mention it briefly here. Anytime the concept of election comes up, I need to remind you about what the Bible teaches as it relates to election because the election in theology is not the election of the Bible. The election, as you would hear it, particularly in Reformed circles, is a theological definition of election that does not conform to what the Bible teaches, the biblical definition of election. Election in the Bible has nothing to do with God choosing who will be saved and has everything to do with the purpose and the standing of those who enter into the saved state. So you enter into your election at the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are not elect unto salvation. Election is unto a purpose, not unto a state. The elect is the body of believers that have entered into salvation by grace through faith when at once they have received the gospel and so become one of the elect, one of the chosen, one of the few, one of those who have entered into a, into a promised state that will end with glorification. I enter into that state the moment that I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. And while we find this to be the case biblically, we also understand full well that God who is beyond time and not bound by time in its linear nature, is fully aware of who is and who is not going to accept him as, as a savior. We know that God is already standing in the heavenlies in eternity future with us, knowing who is there. But it does not follow that because God knows who will be in heaven, that he thus chooses who will be there and who will not. There's a logical leap that is inconsistent with biblical teaching. It is entirely biblical to state that God knows who will be saved. It is entirely outside of biblical teaching. It's a logical leap, not a theological leap, not a biblical leap, to state thus that God has chosen who will be saved and who will not. God calls those who are saved the chosen because they have been chosen to be complete in Christ. They have been chosen unto all the promises of Christ. They have been predestinated, according to the, God's foreknowledge, to be completed, to be finished, to be glorified. But that does not mean he has chosen who gets saved and who does not. So we've seen so far two points, and I want to make that clear. Anytime election comes up, we need to clarify that point because it's muddied in the world today especially the Christian church. Verse 8, we see the power of the gospel, the very power of life from the dead, the power that compels the foundation in which we live. Verses 9 and 10, we see the liberty of the gospel, remembering that we have been freed from the bondage of our sin and that as we take it to a lost and dying world, we are seeking for them to be freed and that it is worth the suffering. It is worth the shame. It is worth the indignity if a soul might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are messengers willingly suffering the troubles and the dangers that come to those who would proclaim the truth because regardless of what society might do unto me, the message of the gospel once in the ears of the hearers cannot be bound. And so I tell. And I tell with gladness. And this compels me to endure hardship because I know that regardless of what we see or what we feel or what we experience, we know that the gospel's power and the gospel's liberty cannot be bound by the evils of men. Our final point is in verses 11 through 13. And it answers the question of why. A question which we've answered in any number of contexts. I even preached a message, as I said in Philippians, called Why Live This Way? A little while back, 
Why endure hardness instead of give in? Why suffer trouble as an evildoer when it would be so easy just to put my head down and float through this life anonymously, just to be a closet Christian? Why does it matter so much that I don't live that way? Verses 11 through 13. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. The promise of the gospel is that our association with Jesus' death will also bring about our association with Jesus' life, right? That's the promise. If I die with Christ, I will live with Christ. This is the message of the gospel. This is salvation, that I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and when I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I am judicially associated with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So we see in uh, Romans chapter 6, we are buried with him by baptism into death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. This is not speaking of physical water baptism. This is speaking of what happens judicially, spiritually, at the moment that a person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. I am placed into Christ's death, and so I am associated with his death. Thus, I serve a new master, and thus I am free to be raised to walk in a different context of life, dead to sin, alive unto Christ. But the bless blessings don't just stop with heaven. Do they? When I accept Jesus Christ as my, my Savior, when I place my full faith and trust in the gospel unto salvation, I thus die with Christ. I'm associated with his death. I'm associated with his resurrection. But then Paul says these interesting things in the gospel, in, in, in his epistles, such as, I die daily. What's he mean by that? Or in Colossians, where he says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. What does that mean? We have to keep dying. Why? If I have already been buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, I'm a new creation in Christ, I'm going to heaven, what else is there? Well, see, the blessings don't stop just with heaven. Any man who takes up his cross and follows Christ, any man who will die to self and live unto Christ by grace through faith in the gospel will live with Christ, will experience the resurrection. But what about the disposition of that resurrection? Remember last week, Sunday night, Paul says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead there in Philippians chapter 3. And we said Paul's not saying that he's trying to earn salvation there in the sense of going to heaven. He acknowledged even in that very context that that's not what he was trying to do. But rather, we, we, we recognize that the fullest realities of the joys of the rewards of the resurrection are only to those who live a crucified life. If we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. These are rewards, Christian. These are rewards. To whatever degree we're willing to yield the things of this life for the promises of the life that is to come, to whatever degree we walk by faith and not by sight, to whatever degree we pursue the promises of the eternal above the promises of the temporal, to that degree we receive rewards in eternity. And to the contrary, to the degree that we deny Christ, to that degree he will deny us. Now this is a concept we find throughout Scripture that the extent of our faith will dictate the extent of our reward. 
And this is not just about denying salvation, denying Christ unto damnation. This is, this is not even the context here, right? Paul's talking to Timothy. <laughs> He's not talking to a bunch of unbelievers here. He's not warning Timothy that Timothy's going to lose his salvation. There's nothing in the context that even lends itself to that. But here's the thing. As a believer, I can still deny association with Christ, can't I? I, 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 can't, I can't reject. I will not reject the gospel. I will not apostatize in that way. But I can disassociate. I can cower. I can be silent when I need to speak up. I can choose not to share the gospel when I otherwise should. I can choose not to live out the creed of the gospel when I otherwise should. I can choose to conform to what those unbelievers are doing, to talk like them, to live like them, to act like them, in order to not rock the boat, in order to not ruffle any feathers. I can choose to do that, but it is at the expense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that when Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Paul is exhorting unto a boldness for the gospel to not be ashamed, to not deny Christ in that sense. And so Jesus warned, do not your alms to be seen of men. And he says, if you do your alms to be seen of men, you'll receive only the reward of men's applause. Whereas those who do their alms in secret unto God will be rewarded by God openly. Jesus said, those who pray to be seen of men will receive the reward of being seen of men and will have no reward of God. Whereas those who pray before God in secret, God will, be, will reward them openly. We see a, a give and a take. We see an action and a consequence in the Christian life that says that as I do things for the Lord, I receive rewards. And as I do things not unto the Lord, not for the Lord, I suffer loss. Those who deny the gospel will be denied the rewards of the gospel and so inherit eternal death. And those who deny the commission upon believers to love not the world, those who deny the commission upon believers to share the gospel, will be denied the eternal rewards given to those who are willing to yield the things of this life for the things of the life to come. Don't expect God to give you the rewards of suffering for the gospel if you don't suffer for the gospel. And this is the promise of the gospel. Now, does this mean, Pastor, I'm going to go seek out suffering? No. No. I'm not going to go make myself odious so that people will hate me so that I can say I'm getting more rewards because that's not how that works, right? I, I, I don't make myself ugly in the eyes of men, suffer for that, and then receive reward. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, For what glory is it if when I suffer, when I be buffeted for doing wrong, I take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. If I go up and smack someone and they smack me back, I can't say I'm suffering for Jesus, right? Because I smacked them first. I am receiving the just recompense of my actions. But when I suffer for doing well, there is reward there. When I cower and I refuse to accept the suffering of well-doing and I hide instead, doesn't mean I'm not going to heaven. It doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. But what it does mean is I'm losing, I'm, I'm yielding something. I'm giving something away. I'm yielding that which is eternal for that which is temporal. 
And the reason why we know this, the reason why we know that God will act in this way, the reason why if we deny him, he will deny us in this way, exactly as Jesus said, to, um, that, that to whom it, it uh, that, that um, uh, he that meets, it, it will be meted back to him again, that's where I was going for, going for with that, is because God is faithful. This is the reflection of a faithful God, a God that acts in consistency to himself, a God that cannot deny himself. We said last week, no one can cheat the system. I cannot live in self-righteousness, giving lip service to the gospel, and think that on the day of judgment, I'll be found clothed in Christ's righteousness. I cannot live for myself and for the priorities of this life and pretend to live for God and think that I'm going to receive eternal rewards for it. Regardless of whether I believe it or I don't believe it, God is faithful. God will be faithful to bless according to his promise of blessing. God will be faithful to curse according to his promise of cursing because God cannot deny himself. In the Old Testament, when we see Israel going through all of the terrible, terrible things in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we see them suffering greatly, and one may ask, how could God possibly do that? And then you flip back to Deuteronomy, and you realize that God promised, if you act this way, this is what's going to happen to you. That for God not to have taken them into captivity, for God not to have made their women barren, for God not to have brought plagues upon their land would have been for God to, to, to lie. God had to do that to them because he promised he would. And he warned them not to, not to act in such a way as to incur it. They acted in such a way, they, God followed through. God had to follow through. He could not deny himself. God has promised us great rewards for we who will live in consistency with God's commission. And God is a God of grace and God is a God of mercy and thank God for these things. But God is faithful, which means I cannot expect, as we said last week, I cannot expect the rewards of a general if I live like a private. It's not going to happen. And the wonderful thing about this is that God is thus entirely predictable. If I want the rewards, I know exactly what I need to do to get them. Right? I know. I don't have to wonder, am I going to get them, am I not going to get them? I can know, based upon my disposition, based upon whether or not I am being faithful to that which God has called me to do. Now, we said last week, don't take this out of context from what I said last week. We all have different callings, right? You are not called to be the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. That's my calling. I'm accountable to that calling. I'm responsible to that calling. I will receive the rewards consistent with that calling. You're accountable, accountable as fathers, as mothers, as siblings, as children, as workers, as, as bosses, as any number of other things. You will be accountable to your calling. You will be accountable to your responsibilities. Not mine, and I won't be accountable to yours. But are you living out a joyful alignment with what God has called you to do so that you might win the prize? Because God is faithful. Remember the power of the gospel. Remember the liberty of the gospel. Remember the promise of the gospel. And what this brings us to is a constant point of decision. And we, we even see, as I mentioned already, Paul reflect upon this constant point of decision when he said, I die daily. As I weigh in the balance my days and my hours, when I open my eyes in the morning and determine the disposition of my day, 
when I stand in any given circumstance, at any given crossroads, and I choose the path that I'm going to take, the details of that decision might be ambiguous. I may not all know all the ins and the outs of, of the decision. I may not know uh, the rockiness of that path. I may not even walk that path very smoothly. I may trip and fall. I may fall into a ditch. I may, I may have any, any number of problems as I'm walking the path, but am I on the right, am I on the path? I may not know exactly what God wants for me in any given circumstance because of my lack of understanding, because of the complications of this life, whatever it might be, but I know what God wants of me, which is to seek him, to seek his word, and to be willing to stand in the day of battle, to be willing to speak when speaking needs to happen, to be willing to be quiet when being quiet needs to happen, to be willing to stand when standing needs to happen to be willing to move when moving needs to happen. And then I make my decision and I accept the consequences of it, doing so in utmost confidence that as I am faithful to God and his principles, he will without fail be faithful to me. That God will be faithful to reward me as I am faithful to obey him because God cannot deny himself and that God will be faithful to chasten me as I fail to obey him because God cannot deny himself. And so I endure hardness. I suffer trouble. I endure all things for the elect's sake. I endure all things for the sake of the gospel, knowing that the faithful God in heaven will reward any hardness in this life with a reward in the life to come as I am faithful. And the, the wonderful thing about our context, it's changing, but I don't even have to endure much hardness to be faithful to the gospel, do I? In this generation, in this context, in this place, it's getting worse. It's getting to the point where there's, some, there, there's gonna be some real consequences, but it hasn't, we're, we're, not, we're not fully there yet, are we? It's, it's actually fairly light, the consequence. And I rest under the assurance given to me by virtue of a victorious resurrection that the reward of the just is far beyond any shame, any sorrow, or any suffering that man could possibly do unto me. And so I live out the gospel. I abide faithful because he abides faithful. And that brings us to that daily point of decision. Am I being faithful? Am I being faithful to the call of God upon my family to live out the distinctions of God's call? Am I being faithful to the call of the gospel upon my church to live and to love and to serve one another in joy? Am I being faithful to the call of the gospel before the eyes of the unbelieving world, living out the distinctions of your faith, speaking unto it as the Lord opens the doors? Are you willing to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to do so? Let's go back to what we said last week. Are you willing to yield the entanglement with this world that you may please him who hath chosen you to be a soldier? Have you put those things on the altar so that if the Lord were to call you to do something different, you're ready? In the day of adversity, if it is ever to come to you, to your family, to this church, are we aligned with Christ in such a way so as to stand? because we know that God abides faithful. 
We know that God will not deny himself. Let us be careful not to deny the power, the liberty, or the promise of the gospel in our own lives. Let's allow the gospel, that glorious gospel, which we, have all, which we considered for the first half of our message, to be the foundation that drives us unto a willingness to be what the Lord has called us to be for himself and for others. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.